Welcome to Crazy Crimes with Kara. I'm your host, Kara, and we'll be diving into a world of people who have their own brand of crazy. Serial killers, regular murderers, disappearances, unsolved mysteries, and maybe even some odd sightings of make-believe creatures. Or are they? Buckle up, buttercup. It's about to be one hell of a ride. I'm adding a disclaimer to this podcast due to the fact that people don't seem to understand that this is a true crime comedy podcast. So if that is not your cup of tea, please do not listen. I'm still going to continue to make and perform on this podcast the way that I want to make and perform on this podcast. Yes, it's informative. Yes, I will go through the details of crimes. Yes, I will poke fun at whatever I feel the need to poke fun at. If it isn't for you, don't listen. Hello, my bad shit beauties. How are we doing? Do we have a lovely holiday? Are we going to have a lovely new year? Are we Are we doing okay? Is everybody okay? That's what I want to know. Today, we're talking about Delaware's only serial killer. That would be the Route 40 killer. Now, I keep wanting to say Interstate 40, so if I say Interstate 40... I apologize. I have Interstate 40. Um, Now, this one kind of blows my mind a little bit for Delaware to only have one. I know it's a small state. Um, The only other state I can think that would be smaller than it would be Rhode Island. But here we are talking about Stephen Brian Pinnell. Now, here's the kicker about Pinnell. He was born in November of 1957. We know nothing about his childhood. So, knowing nothing about his childhood typically means his parents were loving. They took care of him. They did their best to raise a proper young man to the best of their abilities. This motherfucker was just born a serial killer. His parents tried to do right by him. And it didn't work. Because typically if we know nothing about their families, then they came from a good home life. Because if they came from a bad home life, then they talk about it. Well, you know, my mom beat me. My dad burned me with cigarettes. We know these things because they talk about it. He has nothing wrong to say about his family. Nothing. So, we're going to get to the first victim. And her name was Shirley Ellis. She was 23 years old and was studying to become a nurse. Like she had just bought nursing, school books, but she was a former prostitute. Now, three days after Thanksgiving in 1987, she left the comfort of her parents' home. And she went to Wilmington Hospital in order to give an AIDS patient that was receiving treatments Uh, a platter of food essentially from Thanksgiving. So she thought, okay, well, I'll catch a ride. And she walked down to Route 40, started to hitchhike. And she just kind of thought she knew the area would be the best way to describe it. She had worked that area when she was a prostitute. She was comfortable getting into people's vehicles. She made a lot of mistakes that the 80s 
the 80s were very, very fond of. Let me hitchhike. Let me get into strangers' cars. Let me do whatever. So, a vehicle pulls over, picks her up. That was seen. A couple hours later, she's found in a corridor, partially nude, legs spread apart, hands and feet tied with duct tape, but there were no signs of sexual assault, though she had been seriously abused. Her head had been beaten with a hammer, and she had a some kind of a string tied around her neck. So... First kill, or first known kill, I should say, by Stephen Padel. And he made it clear that he was working with some kind of tools, like the standard kind of tools you're going to find in a toolbox. He made it clear to authorities that this is what he was working with. Then we have his second victim, his Second victim is Catherine DeMauro, or DeMauro. I'm not really sure how to say that. 31-year-old divorced prostitute, though it's not known whether or not she was actually working at the time. Uh, so, June 28th, 1988, so about seven months after the first murder, she was seen walking down Route 40, and it was unclear if she was working, like I said, and then about 6.25 the next morning, construction workers found her naked body at the construction site of a development. They were developing homes. So her wrists were tied to her feet. Her mouth was taped as well. There was no signs of sexual assault. So they assumed that... Uh, whoever had killed Ellis had probably killed tomorrow too. Um, because she had the same kind of hammer blows, the same kind of strangulations. Uh, but there was a difference. Catherine had blue fibers on her body. So that prompted police to try and figure out where the blue fibers came from. Of course, we need forensics. Absolutely. Get those fucking forensics. So, special police forces were made, uh, FBI came in, did a profile, and they concluded that a serial killer was operating in close proximity to Route 40. Um, before this, because it was Route 40, uh, when Shirley had been killed, they assumed that it was a truck driver. Because right on Route 40, and this is the 80s. At this point, we've seen multiple serial killers that are truck drivers. So, the people of Delaware just thought, hey, it's probably a truck driver. So, police and federal agents started going undercover, basically, as prostitutes in an attempt to gather information. Uh, and their task force had over 60 people on it. And it was formed solely to capture whoever the killer was. Now, in the beginning, this doesn't work. So, the next one comes a couple months later with Mar Margaret Lynn Finner, and that was on August 22nd, 1998, or 1988, I'm sorry. 27-year-old Margaret disappeared. So, a number of people saw her get her into a 
Ford that was driven by a white man near Route 13. And then about three months later, her body was found floating in the Chesapeake-Delaware Canal, but the body was so badly decomposed that the cause of death could not be determined properly. So here we are with three bodies that they believe is all one person. And a huge task force that has implemented women going out and essentially pretending to be prostitutes in order to capture someone that they believe is only picking up prostitutes. So with this task force, like I said, we have got a lot of people going undercover, but we have one female in particular, Renee Tashner, who was 23 years old. She was a Newcastle County police officer. And she made the biggest break in the case. She had so many men stopping to talk to her while she's disguised as a prostitute. She has school teachers, doctors, lawyers, anybody and everybody is stopping to talk to this attractive 23-year-old girl. So they had a bunch of stakeouts and they just, they preferred her. So finally, when there's a point that she's got five or six vehicles with men in it waiting just to talk to her, they start seeing a blue Ford panel van with round headlights drive past. It stopped further down the road and then would turn around, stop again, turn around, stop again, but it wasn't stopping at her. She estimated that it drove past her seven times in about 20 minutes. So she walked to a more secluded area the van finally stopped at her, and a white male opened the side panel. Tashner immediately saw the blue carpet covering the van's interior and noticed that the driver was extremely cold with her. And she said, I quote, He was different than any other person who stopped for me. It was hard to get into a conversation, and he wasn't in the moment. He was just looking right through me. So this girl decided to be smart enough to playfully rub her hands against the carpet on the van's floor, being able to pull out some of the fibers for testing. And when the driver demanded that she get in the van, she refused and he asked again, and she made up a story about being tired from partying all night and she just needed to sleep, which made the driver suspicious and he took off. But while Tashner was engaged in all that small talk, everybody that's watching her is running that van's plates they found out that it was registered to Stephen Brian Pinnell, who was a Delaware electrician with no criminal record. So in the next couple weeks, both the killer and the task force really started accelerating their activities. And then the blue fibers were sent to a lab for testing and search warrants were secured to follow Pinnell. So they get this search warrant, but we have an another abduction. So this abduction, there was one witness and she knew, or I should say this witness knew the female abducted and the male that was driving the van. If that's not mind boggling, then I don't know what is. She immediately identified the vehicle and that helped secure a break in this case. So, Michelle Gordon was a 22-year-old Newcastle resident, and she disappeared on September 16, 1988. She was known as a prostitute to everyone in the area, 
but she was last seen on Route 40 hopping into the passenger side of a blue Ford panel van. <clears throat> Her body washed up on the rocky banks of the Chesapeake and the Delaware Canal on September 20th, so four days later. Now, because she was a cocaine addict, she was the only victim who died while she was being tortured. Uh, the medical examiner testified that the drugs in her system made her heart incapable of withstanding the shock of her beating. So she died sooner than anyone else, which is the only lucky thing about this for her. And then three days later, Kathleen Meyer, which was a Brookmont Farm resident, was last seen alive hitchhiking along Route 40 around 9.30 p.m. An off-duty police officer spotting the, spotted her accepting a ride from a stranger in a blue Ford van. Aware of its connection to the murder, he jotted down the plate number. It was registered to Pinnell, but they never found her body. So at this point, the task force is just monitoring Pinnell's every move. Tashner even sat next to Pinnell at a, Mon or at a Moody Blues concert, and she recalls the heartbreaking encounter with his daughter, who approached the officer during a stakeout and asked for a donation to a school fundraiser. She says she was a kid and you never want any child to experience what was happening. So basically he's going about his life and just killing prostitutes on the side. And it is becoming very, very serious. So we have a body count right now of five. Because we have Ellis, we have Demaro, we have Finner, we have Gordon, and we have Meyer, whose body was never found. So we're up to five bodies. And the police are just watching him. They're waiting on him to fuck up just because he was the last person seen with them. These women, they're, they're waiting for a major fuck up. Even though she got the fibers that were found on tomorrow's body, Miss Tashner did. Um, they're just waiting on him to continue doing what he's doing and letting more women die. I don't care if they're a sex worker or not. You don't just watch women die. That's just super fucked up. Fucking idiots. So they finally decide to arrest this dude. When the Delaware Attorney General, Charles Oberly, approved a search warrant for Pinnell's van, he got pulled over for a routine traffic violation and was immediately hauled into court to pay his ticket, which is apparently infrequent, but a very legal method for police to detain a suspect. Good on them for using whatever means necessary to catch a serial killer. So police search the vehicle and then they find things that the victims couldn't say. We'll say all that evidence was in that van. So they discover carpet fibers matching those on the victims, along with hair, blood, and the same brand of duct tape used on tomorrow. And there was the so-called torture kit, pliers, a whip, handcuffs, needles, knives, and restraints. So they issue an arrest warrant on November 29, 1988, a year after his first victim. So Pinnell was in handcuffs, finally, and charged with the murder of tomorrow Gordon, and Ellis. They couldn't, they couldn't charge him with Meyer because they never found her body. And they couldn't charge him with Finney because they couldn't definitively prove he did it due to decomp. So, three out of five. Not too, too bad. So, he was your typical all-American person, the task force leader Hendrick said on the interview with Pinnell. 
He came across as a totally normal married father with no criminal record. No one would ever look at his background and see signs that this could happen. No one would ever suspect him of anything. So he's a golden boy. He didn't have a bad home life. He was married. He had some kids. He was, yeah, he was just a golden boy. So why would you look at this golden boy to commit these kind of heinous acts? We don't know. So prior to his trial, his defense attorney like attacked the fiber evidence, accusing Tashner that she didn't have the authority to seize the strands. And then Superior Court Judge Richard, I have no idea how to say this, Gibelin, we're going to go with that, denied Mars claims concluding that the carpet was in plain view once Pinnell opened the door to invite Tashner inside the van. So the fibers led to everything else. Without the fibers, they would have to throw out everything. So it was good that this judge was like, yeah, sorry, they were in plain sight. She was allowed to do that. So if anything had happened, he overly actually said, if that was ruled inadmissible, everything else would have been kept out under the fruit of the poisonous tree legal doctrine. And that could have been devastating. Like this dude would have been able to leave and do whatever he needed to and continue killing elsewhere or still in Delaware. But he could have continued if they would have made all of that inadmissible. So Jennings planned to introduce more than blue fibers at Pinnell's criminal trial. She had DNA evidence. So at the time, only two other criminal cases in the country had permitted its introduction. The Pinnell case would actually be the first DNA evidence that was used in a criminal trial. And we're in the 80s. So there was a learning curve on this. Uh, that Supreme Court judge said there weren't a lot of experts in that field and there was no case law to ensure the evidence was introduced correctly. I had to let the scientists testify and then make a decision whether their actions were legally sound. So we're making headway in forensic sciences at this point in time. Um, and it was fine. Everything worked out great. So despite the fibers and the DNA, the strongest case against Stephen Pinnell was Stephen Pinnell. So Mara rolled the dice and had his client testify how the victim's blood and hair was found, found their way into his van. And he claimed he picked up tomorrow, paid her $25 for oral sex, then dropped her off, joking that she gave him $10 back afterwards. And the jury was horrified. First of all, sex workers aren't giving you money back. Second of all, you're a cocky bastard. So that was an interesting interesting testimony obviously so marer contended that it was a fine piece of test the finest piece piece of testifying that he had ever seen he explained everything where he got slaughtered you know was his demeanor he had these cold dark eyes that didn't move around a lot tried to work with him but people are who they are so he wasn't interacting he wasn't looking around the room he wasn't trying to look at the jury he was just looking at his attorney and he was like i eh, fuck these people i don't really care like he was dead inside that's why he's killing all these women he uh he couldn't find the light in his life he had a wonderful wife beautiful children good loving parents but he was just fucked up
So the jury basically hated him. But this jury spent eight days going through evidence and going through deliberation, which is the longest in Delaware's legal history. Eight days. Everybody thought it was going to be quick. Mara even was like, I thought it was going to be two days. He was going to get be convicted. We were going to be done. So that didn't happen. But on November 23rd, 1989, Thanksgiving Day, the jury reached a verdict and a horrible, horrible snowstorm settled down in the reading over the region. And Jennings Moore and Peter Latag of, or Latang, I'm sorry, of the Attorney General's office abandoned their holiday plans to learn Pinnell's fate. These guys were like, nope, fuck Thanksgiving dinner. We're going to sit here and listen to what these jurors have to say because we want to make sure this dude is locked the fuck up. So they thought that the jury should have been done before Thanksgiving and they were sequestered any longer. They wouldn't have been able to go home to their families. So they were kind of thankful that they, they got it that evening and got to manage dinner with their families. But in the end, Pinnell was convicted of murdering Ellis and Damaro, but the jury deadlocked on the Gordon case because there was just too much evidence that had to be explained. Um, so they didn't, they couldn't soundly say, hey, yes, he killed her too. Her body had been in water for four days. That killed a lot of their evidence, you know, so on and so forth. And it was just one of those things. So they did convict him of two. So two out of five, our numbers are going down. But Pinnell's next move Shocked the entire world. He pled no contest to the two murders and asked the Supreme Court to sentence him to death. He did not, however, confess. So he didn't say, yes, I did it, but he asked to be put to death. Now, that's the part that mild, like absolutely blows my mind. Was he that fucked up that he would just rather die and he didn't want to do it himself? He said, and I quote, This court has found me guilty on the testimony of witnesses, so I ask that the sentence be death. As said by the state's law and God's law, that's all I have to say. This crazy motherfucker actually ended up getting like a reprieve twice from the death penalty, so, you know. Okay, so... He asked to be sentenced to death. And two people appealed against Pinnell's ex execution, but both were unanimously dismissed by the court. So his wife appealed to the Supreme Court decision. Uh, she received help from a, a local branch of the American Citizens Association and a law professor who was one of its directors. He argued in the appeal that Pinnell was insane and could not fully understand the gravity of his actions, so the trial should be reopened with Pinnell being barred from representing himself. Supreme Court rejected, so stay of execution due to those appeals. So, prior to the execution, numerous reporters tried to ask Pinnell for exclusive interviews, hoping to reveal the location of Meyer's body, and he turned down every request. When it came to Close to his execution date, he agreed to be interviewed by one newspaper with his lawyer present. And during this interview, Pinnell revealed no new information nor where he had hidden Meyer's body. So on March 14, 1992, Pinnell was executed by lethal in injection, becoming the first person executed in Delaware in 46 years and the 
fifth person to be executed in the United States since the death penalty was reinstated in 1976. So this dude, he got to go through a bunch of shit. Um, but he also, while he's incarcerated, he's enduring uh, psychological help and all of that good jazz. So it's one of those things that it didn't help him. So, most people think that asking for death was his way of admitting to doing it, but they don't really think that he wanted to admit to it. Asking for death would be the only way that he could be like, you know what? Here we are, and I'm going to die for what I've done because that's the United States law and that's God's law. That would be very... logical to say he's admitting to it without admitting to it. Thank you so much for listening to me babble on and on about how insane people are, but I really appreciate that. Please subscribe or follow on whatever your preferred listening platform is. You can also follow me on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok. And that's Crazy Crimes with Kara. That's Kara with a K. Then join me next week to hear the newest episode of Crazy Crimes with Kara. Thank you.